Hello everyone and welcome back. Happy to have you with me today. And if you are new, then welcome. So today we are going to be talking about the Idaho student murders. And I'm sure most of you, if not all of you, if you're interested in true crime, have been following this case or have at least heard of it. I have to say this is probably the most requested case I've ever seen. You guys have been tweeting me almost daily. There have been so many submissions to my request inbox to cover this case, and I did wait quite a while to cover it for several reasons. First being, this is just one of the most upsetting cases that I've ever seen. It's truly scared me, and you know, obviously I've covered a lot of cases, and it takes a lot to really freak me out, but this one did. I can't tell you how many nights I've just been lying awake thinking about what these four students went through in their final moments of life. And I think probably all of us who have been following this have been kind of rocked by it because it is just so, so brutal and unimaginable, especially now being a parent. I cannot imagine what these parents are going through, what these friends and people who loved these four students are dealing with and, you know, going forward and in the last few months. Sorry, I'm getting kind of choked up because it's just, it's so, so upsetting and, and truly scares me. And for a while there, when there was not a suspect in custody, I was afraid to even talk about this case because it blew my mind that someone could get away with it. And of course, at the time, for a while there, police did have a suspect in mind, but didn't say anything to the media for a while. And so there's kind of the idea that is this person really going to get away with it? And that was scary. There were rumors for a while that maybe this person was in Colorado. That really freaked me out. And so I kind of waited to cover this. And that's not the only reason. I also waited because there has been so much misinformation and really harmful rumors going around about several different people who were totally innocent and were accused of being involved. And it's just really dangerous to be spreading misinformation. And it was important to me to get the right information to you guys instead of being, you know, one of the first ones to get the information out there. I wanted to wait and make sure that I really stick to the facts here. And this often happens in cases where there is a lot of interest. Random people start getting on the internet, start making their own theories. I've seen people on TikTok spreading tons of misinformation. I've seen people before the suspect was actually caught doing uh, tarot card readings and placing blame on people who didn't deserve it. And I'll talk more about that later. But it's really important, especially in big cases like this, which this one is just beginning. I mean, now that there's a suspect in custody, the trial process is going to take a long time. And it's just really important that people stick to the facts. And again, I just want to say if, you know, if you're following this case online, just be careful about what you share, what you like, what information that you take in, because there is so much just false information out there. And it's, it's really harmful to not only the case, but to the families. And this case is ongoing. So I'll likely be making a part two at some point. So there's a lot of information to go over here today. So I want to just jump right in. I wanted to start out today really talking about the victims and giving you an idea of who these four young, wonderful people were. So these four college students who were murdered are named Kaylee Gonzalez, Madison Mogan, Ethan Chapin, and Zana Kernodal. These four were brutally, brutally murdered in the early morning hours of November 13th, 2022 at the University of Idaho located in Moscow. 
So let's start with Madison, or Maddie May, as her family called her. She was born May 25th, 2001, in Eugene, Oregon. She was an only child to her parents, Ben and Karen, who moved their family to Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, when she was just a few years old. And despite her parents getting divorced, Maddie had a very full and loving childhood. People who knew Maddie say that she had a huge sense of humor that she could make anyone laugh and smile. She was a bright person. Like she just had a light about her. And like I said, she had a really good sense of humor and was always making people laugh. And sometimes it was unexpected coming from, as her friend said, this little blonde girl, but she just had a zest for life, loved to laugh and loved the people in her life. She and her friends loved making TikTok videos. And I think her sense of humor can really be seen in these types of videos that she was posting. I mean, just looking at her, you can feel a sense of lightness and warmth that she carried in this world. I also read that her loved ones knew to never let her get hungry because she would get hangry. And I thought that was really relatable and funny. And beyond just being a good person, a good friend, a good daughter, she was also incredibly smart. She was a great student. She attended middle school at Coeur d'Alene Charter Academy, where she met her best friend, Kaylee Gonzalez. And these two were incredibly close. When they were younger, they actually wrote a letter to their parents convincing them to go to high school together. They wanted to go to Lake City High School, and they were able to. And really, these two were more than best friends. They were practically inseparable, and it's almost impossible to talk about one without talking about the other. Kaylee's father even says that the two were more like sisters than they were friends. Where one of them went, the other followed, and that included their decision to attend college together. And they ended up at the University of Idaho. Now, Maddie was extremely focused when it came to her future. She took her academics very seriously. And while attending University of Idaho, she majored in marketing and she made the dean's list every semester. She also got involved in Greek life, which is pretty big on this campus. And she joined Pi Beta Phi, the sorority. And not only was she balancing academics and Greek life, but she also had a boyfriend named Jake and worked part-time at a restaurant called Mad Greek. So she had a lot going on in her life between school and her extracurricular activities and work and all the friendships that she had, but she still managed to enjoy being a 21-year-old in college. Maddie was still trying to figure out what exactly she wanted to do in her life, what she wanted to do after she graduated, but one thing she wanted was to be able to stay near her best friend, Kaylee Gonzalez. So now let's talk about Kaylee. Kaylee Jade Gonzalez was born on June 8th, 2001 to her parents, Steve and Christy, and was raised in Rathdrum. Idaho. She was the middle child of five siblings and was a bit of a spitfire from the beginning. Her father described her as the memory maker and the planner of the family. They said if they were going to take a weekend trip, Kaylee would make sure it was filled with adventures and stories to tell. She was very authentically herself. She was social. She was very, very goofy and also really loved fashion and worked hard to buy herself the nicer things in life. If she wanted something, she would be the one to work hard and get it rather than rely on someone else. Kaylee was the middle child in her family and her parents said that she fit in that role really well. She was really tough, but fair. And they said that she was always trying to prove that girls could do anything boys could do. And I loved that. She was known for being a very loyal friend, someone that you definitely want to have in your corner. And like I mentioned, she and Maddie were practically inseparable. Kaylee's father, Steve, said that Maddie quickly became their sixth child. She was always around their house, whether that meant hanging out with Kaylee or playing with Kaylee's younger sisters. And that was good for Maddie too, especially because she was the only child. So she really got that experience of siblings through being around Kaylee's family 
family a lot. They were just like yin and yang, and it was nice because, you know, Kayla would come over to the house or over to their house, and then Maddie would come to our house, and then there were opposites. Like her house was empty and nice and quiet and peaceful. She could do her homework, but Maddie wanted to come over here and play with her sisters. And, you know, I have a, and I feel like a big sister in our house and she was always good with the kids. So it really worked out to where it was just a natural fit. So while she was attending the University of Idaho, Kaylee majored in general studies and had an interest in possibly becoming a teacher, although she wasn't completely sold on that yet. So she was still figuring out her life as well. And, you know, both of them thought that they had their whole lives to figure that out. So Kaylee was also a part of Greek life. She was in a different sorority than Maddie. She was an alpha fee. And because of an internship she was working on, Kaylee had lined up an IT job in Texas after graduating. Like Maddie, Kaylee was 21 years old enjoying her college years and had a lot of life that she was looking forward to living. Next, let's talk about Zanna Kernodal. She was born on July 5th, 2002 to her parents, Jeff and Kara. She grew up in Post Falls, Idaho and had an older sister named Jasmine. From a young age, it was clear that Zanna was an athlete. By the time she was in high school, she played volleyball, track, and soccer. And she loved being outdoors. Any type of outdoor activity she was down for, and she was dedicated to everything that she did. Zana was also super passionate about EDM music. She loved to go to concerts and spend time there with her friends and family. People who are close to her say that Zana was incredibly positive, always looking on the bright side. She was very outgoing, and it was important to her to make sure that everyone around her felt included. Her father said that she was never the type of girl to get involved in drama and that she was never materialistic. And people around her say that she was always down for the ride, no matter what that meant at the time. And this just absolutely broke my heart. But when she graduated high school, she decorated her cap and she wrote on it for the lives that I will change, which to me is just a great example of the type of person that she was. She wanted to help those around her. And had she been given the chance, I know that she would have gone on to do incredible things. While attending the University of Idaho, Zana majored in marketing and also joined Pi Beta Phi, the same sorority as Maddie Mogan. She and Maddie also worked together at that restaurant, Mad Greek, which only added to their closeness. Even though her life was full with school and work, Zana also made time for her relationship with 20-year-old Ethan Chapin. The two of them really had built a friendship before they started dating, but by summer of 2022, they were fully in a relationship and she was beginning to spend a lot of her time with Ethan and his family. And both of their families loved them together and loved how similar they were and how happy they made each other. So now let's talk about Ethan, the fourth victim in this case. Ethan Chapin was born on October 28, 2002, followed by his siblings, Maisie and Hunter. Just a few minutes later, he was a triplet. And I just cannot imagine what his siblings are going through. I mean, the relationship, the bond of multiples is just so intense that I really can't imagine. Ugh, just breaks my heart. So the triplets were born in Seattle, but they later moved with their parents, Jim and Stacy, to Conway, Idaho. Like Xana, Ethan was very athletic and loved being outside. So this was just one of the many things that the two of them had in common. He played soccer, basketball, ran cross country, but was pretty much capable of playing any sport he wanted. He was very well-rounded athletically. And he also really loved to golf, surf, and play pickleball. You name it, he played it, literally. Yeah. I think... We just watched a thing from the university, spike ball champion, volleyball champion. I mean, literally would play and do anything. He, he played club soccer for years. He was played 
you know, we traveled all of our kids are athletic and we traveled every weekend and they just we just love to play everything. He did. All he loves sports. sports. I mean, our like our love language with him was sports. And Ethan loved his family. He was very, very close with his parents and his siblings. When one of them did something, the other two followed. So when COVID hit, the triplets were in high school and the three of them packed their bags and moved to the Priest Lake area where they all got a job working at a tulip farm. Their parents also moved with them so that they could all stay close and Ethan loved this job. He loved being surrounded by nature. He was known as an incredible worker. He always had a smile on his face according to the people he worked with. And when it came time to go to college, all three triplets decided to go to the University of Idaho. And I'm glad that they did because they got to spend, you know, the precious last years of Ethan's life close by. Ethan loved life and at any point of the day could be seen with a huge smile on his face. His dimples were one of his most defining features. He majored in sports management and was a member of Sigma Chi. And his loved ones said that he loved his time in college. Since starting college, he was kind of living his best life and he was super into the social aspect and did a good job of kind of tolerating the academic side of it. And once he and Xana started dating, his life only improved. He really, really cared for Xana. The two of them shared so many of the same passions and spent most of the summer of 2022 with his family. Now, talking about these four doesn't even begin to describe who they were. On top of being a group of friends, these four were individuals with their own dreams and aspirations, and every opportunity they had was stolen from them in the early morning hours of November 13th. And one thing that I've really started to see from their parents is the message of moving forward. That doesn't mean forgetting what happened to them, but remembering that they would want each of us to keep moving forward, even if they can't. And now that we've talked about the four of them, I want to start getting into the details of this case and how everything unfolded. So like I said, in the beginning of all this, there were two months where there was a lot of holes missing in the story. And that left a lot of room for people to speculate. There were so many people out there coming up with their own theories, putting out incorrect information about the victims, about the house, about potential suspects. It was really sad. Kaylee had actually broken up with a long-term boyfriend before all of this happened and people started accusing him, making up, you know, all these theories about him, putting out personal information about him, like digging into his private life, being convinced that it was him, that he had some involvement. He was completely cleared by police. There was also a University of Idaho professor who's accused of being involved and she is actually suing a TikToker out of Texas right now for spreading all this misinformation about her. And that kind of thing gets really dangerous very quickly. And that's why I wanted to, you know, refrain from covering this case and even talking about it on social media because the misinformation was truly out of control. But recently, as many of you know, a suspect was recently arrested and a lot more information has come out since then. Today's episode is brought to you by Base. And oh my gosh, do I love this brand. And I'm so excited that they have partnered with me. Base, if you haven't heard of it, was created by actress Shay Mitchell. And 
oh my gosh, I am so obsessed with her. And her brand is just as amazing as she is. They make sleek and affordable bags, luggage, and accessories designed to make your life easier, your travel experiences easier, life as a mom easier. I cannot say enough good things about their diaper bag. Oh my gosh, I'm obsessed with it. I have their bottle cooler as well, and I use it every day. I also love their weekender bag. It's super functional. It has a place to store your shoes separately, which is absolutely genius. Their luggage comes in multiple sizes and colors, and they have really thought of everything that you could want in a piece of luggage. I'm telling you. They have 360 degree gliding wheels, a cushioned handle, a built-in weight indicator. You guys, it's a game changer. They also include washable bags for your dirty clothes and all the interior pockets that you could possibly need to keep organized. Organization has become everything to me since I became a mom. I'm telling you, life is so much easier when you have a place for everything, and that's why I love base. Their luggage comes in multiple sizes and colors, and for shorter trips, like I said, they have their weekend bag, and it's super functional. Every piece is made to look better with miles, so you don't have to worry about it in cargo or overhead, and base has over 30,000 five-star reviews. Whether you're packing for a quick trip, looking to breeze through the security line, base has your personal items covered. And like I said to other parents out there, I highly recommend their bags for every age. Base really has something for everyone. That's why I love it. And I can really speak from experience that their bags are quality, that they're so well designed and very, very useful. And you don't have to sacrifice function for style because with base, you can get them both. And I love that. So right now, base is offering my listeners 15% off your purchase by visiting basetravel.com slash Kendall Ray. That's basetravel.com slash Kendall Ray for 15% off your first purchase. Again, that's base spelled B-E-I-S travel.com slash Kendall Ray. Thank you so much to base for sponsoring this podcast. So now we have a much clearer picture of what really happened on November 13th. And it really all starts the day before on November 12th, 2022. November 12th was the last home game for the football team at the University of Idaho. And football is a really big deal there. So spirits were really high. Everyone was tailgating. I mean, anyone who's been to a college campus on game day knows the kind of atmosphere. It's much different than a regular day. That day, Kaylee posted on her Instagram an unforgettable photo with her roommates. And from everything that I've seen, it seems like they really did feel lucky for the lives that they were living. They actually lived in an area that students call Fratlantis. It's a neighborhood near Greek Row, and living near this area gave Xana, Maddie, and Kaylee nearly 24-7 access to their closest friends and most of the, you know, social events that were going on on campus. So after spending the earlier part of the day tailgating, the roommates and Ethan split up and kind of went their own separate ways. Xana and Ethan went to his fraternity, Sigma Chi, at approximately 9 p.m. It was a Saturday night, so of course the fraternity would be having a party. And because Xana lived so close to the Sigma Chi fraternity, it was an easy walk home, which was very convenient for them. So Xana, Maddie, Kaylee, and the other two roommates they had, Bethany, and the other one is being referred to the media right now as DM. I think her name's out there, but I don't want to, you know, be part of putting that out there if she is trying to, you know, keep some privacy. But they lived at 1122 King Road, which is less than a four minute walk from the Sigma Chi fraternity. Like I said, they showed up around 9 p.m. 
and witnesses say they stayed till approximately 1.45 a.m., at which point they made the very short walk back to the King Road residence. Meanwhile, Kaylee and Maddie spent their night at a local bar called The Corner Club, which was only about a mile and a half away from their house. So the two of them were enjoying themselves at the bar, and they stayed there till about 1.30 a.m. Then just 10 minutes later, there's video of them actually ordering food at a local food truck called The Grub Truck. And this is a very popular stop for students on their way home from a night out, which makes it the perfect place to live stream their business on Twitch. Seeing this footage is... God, it's just heart-wrenching knowing what was going to happen to them. I mean, they looked like they're having a great time. I believe they were getting carbonara, and it just was a normal night for them. And as heartbreaking as this footage is to see, it does really help for the sake of putting together a timeline of what happened. And if you've kind of followed this case online, you know that this footage kind of fed into some of the online theories that are out there. To briefly recap it, there appears to be a hooded man in the footage that is potentially Potentially following the girls. When they grab their food and leave, he can be seen kind of pointing over in their direction and walking off shortly after them. And because of that, so many people speculated that he could have been the one who did it. And even after police cleared him of any involvement, there was still a lot of speculation about this person, which I'm sure whoever that is, you know, all of this has been miserable for them. There's more that I could say on this, but this person is not involved. They have been cleared and there's really no point in spending any more time talking about this. So after they get their food, we're picked up by a private party, likely an Uber or Lyft, who dropped them off at their house at 1.56 a.m. So by 2 a.m., all five roommates plus Ethan were back at the house on 1122 King Road. And something that I recently learned that surprised me is Kaylee had actually already moved out of the house. She had taken summer classes every year and she was set to graduate early in December. So she'd only gone back to campus that weekend to spend as much time with Maddie as she could before moving to Texas for a job. And before we go any further, I want to take some time to just explain this house because it's a very unique layout and there has been a lot of misinformation from the beginning about the house and how it was all set up and where all of the murders occurred. So let's really go through this. So the house has three floors and both the first and the second floor have an entry point and an exit point, meaning that someone could enter and exit on either level. The first floor consists of two bedrooms, a bathroom, and obviously the front door. And even though there are two bedrooms on this level, only one of the rooms was occupied, and it belonged to Bethany Funk. Moving upstairs, you reach the second floor, which is pretty much considered the main level of the house. This floor consists of two bedrooms, a kitchen, and a living room. It can be accessed from the outside through a glass sliding door that leads to a patio on the back side of the property. And on this level, the rooms were occupied by roommate DM and Xana. And finally, you have the third floor, which consists of two bedrooms and one bathroom. The room on the west side belonged to Kaylee and the other to Maddie. And even though their rooms were super close, the two of them actually shared a bed all the time. That's how close they were. They loved to sleep together. So this timeline of how everything played out from 2 to 4 a.m. is pretty confusing and there's limited information. More has come out, but there are some confusing bits still, but especially in the first six weeks of the investigation, it was incredibly unclear. There's only a few things that we knew for certain is that between 2.26 a.m. and 2.44 a.m., Kaylee called her ex-boyfriend Jack six times. Between 2.44 and 2.52, Maddie also attempted three times to call Jack and Kaylee tried calling him again once more at 2.52. 
2.52 a.m. So there are 10 calls here to Jack in total. This is another instance, just like the food truck, where people have started making their own theories about what they think this all means. For a while, people were putting it out there that the girls were clearly trying to call Jack while they were being attacked. This is not true. Like I mentioned, some people even tried to say that maybe he was involved and tried to put blame on him, even though her family the whole time was adamant that he was not involved, that he just would never do something like this. So I can imagine it's been an incredibly hard time for him being falsely accused of killing his ex-girlfriend. So... Next day, November 13th, 2022, a call was made to 911 at 11.58 a.m. The call was placed from inside the King Road residence to report an unconscious person. But when responding officers got there, they obviously saw it was much more than that, that four people had been stabbed and killed inside the home. The bodies of Zana Kernodal and Ethan Chapin were found in her bedroom together on the second floor, and the bodies of Madison Mogan and Kate. Haley Gonzalez were found lying together in Maddie's bed on the third floor. And it's really, really sad to think about the two of them in that moment, what that would have been like for all four of them. And their families have talked about how it has been comforting to them in some way to know that they weren't alone in their final moments. I know it meant a lot to Maddie and Kaylee's families that they were together. Kaylee's dog Murphy was also found upstairs in her bedroom and it's been recently shared by investigators that there was a significant amount of blood and cast off in each of the rooms. And Kaylee's dad has been very vocal from the beginning just wanting people to know that this was an absolutely brutal brutal murder. So obviously responding officers are shocked when they go there thinking that this is, you know, that there's an unconscious person in the house and it turns out to be a quadruple homicide. So they end up calling for additional help, including members of the Moscow Police Department as well as the Idaho State Police. And by 4 p.m. that afternoon, crime scene analysts got there and began processing the scene. So the University of Idaho ended up sending out a mass emergency text alert to all students, letting them know that they should shelter in place, but they ended up lifting this request after just a few hours. However, they did tell students to remain vigilant, although they did not believe there was an active threat. And welcome to this early edition of the Sunday News at 5. I'm Doug Petcash. We begin with breaking news out of North Idaho. Students at the University of Idaho were asked to shelter in place earlier today. The University of Idaho says Moscow police are investigating a homicide on King Road, which, as you can see, is very close to campus. They say police don't have a suspect yet. Around 4 o'clock, the university posted on social media that the Moscow Police Department doesn't believe there is an active threat. The school has lifted the shelter-in-place requests but asked people to remain vigilant. And then it wasn't until the following day, November 14th, that the four students who were murdered were publicly identified. Moscow police say 20-year-old Ethan Chapin of Conway, Washington, 21-year-old Madison Mogan of Coeur d'Alene, 20-year-old Zana Kernodal of Avondale, Arizona, and 21-year-old Kaylee Goncalves of Rathdrum, Idaho, were found dead yesterday around noon local time in Moscow. And it's hard to even imagine what it would be like to get a call that your child had been murdered in such a horrendous way. What it must have been like for all of their friends and family to find out that the four of them had been killed. Family weekend at the university was actually just the week before, and I'm thankful that, you know, they did get to spend time with their children before this 
happened. When Xana's dad visited her that weekend, he remembers feeling really proud of his daughter and couldn't believe how fast she was growing up. He said that he was impressed with how responsible she was and how her relationship with Ethan was going. Ethan's mom vividly remembers how happy she was after getting to visit her three kids that weekend as well. As we pulled out of Moscow, we literally were like, we've done it. We, we've literally done it as parents. We've created three incredible humans that will go on. So then on November 16th, the Moscow Police Department held its first press conference regarding this case, first of many. And they detailed all the information that was known at the time. They introduced which departments would be part of the task force set up to investigate this horrific crime. And in the press conference, it was revealed that the four victims had been stabbed with a knife, although there was no weapon found at the crime scene. We also learned at that time that there was no sign of forced entry and there was no suspect. People were warned to stay vigilant, even though they did say that they believed that this was an isolated event. The four were stabbed with a knife, but no weapon has been located at this time. There was no sign of forced entry into the residence. Investigators are continuing to collect evidence at the scene. Investigators are working to develop a timeline to relevant events. Autopsies are taking place today on all the victims so we can continue to gather evidence and solve the crime. Investigators are working to follow up on all leads and to identify a person of interest. Based on details at the scene, we believe this was an isolated, targeted attack on our victims. We do not have a suspect at this time, and that individual is still out there. We cannot say that there is no threat to the community, and as we have stated, please stay vigilant, report any suspicious activity, and be aware of your surroundings at all times. And the president of the University of Idaho and the provost also spoke that day and answered questions regarding campus safety and security. And obviously this press conference was somewhat informative and important. It definitely left everyone feeling confused, scared. There were so many questions that everyone all around the nation had at this point. The only clear answers we got in those first couple of days was on November 17th when the autopsies were done. And it was confirmed at that point that the cause of death was the result of stabbing and the manner of death was homicide. But there was also a lot of conflicting information because it stated that some of the victims had defensive wounds, but also that they were likely asleep during the attack. So obviously people were wondering how could they possibly have defensive wounds if they were sleeping while this was happening. And I'll get into more of that later, but this is just an example of how some of the information that was put out led to people questioning even more. And when I think back to mid-November and what I was seeing on social media, I remember that most people were just scared, confused, trying to fill those holes themselves. I mean, police were saying that they thought this was an isolated event, but also telling people to stay vigilant. So it was just confusing and very scary for Moscow. People were very confused about how all this played out, how if two people were sleeping together and one was murdered violently, how the other wouldn't have woken up. And it was also confusing to people at the time that it seemed as if two of the surviving roommates had slept through the whole thing happening. And everyone was wondering, how is that possible? How could four people be murdered in a home and no one else wakes up? Well, there has been some more clarification on that. I will get into that later on. The victims' families, the community 
community and really the whole nation were left hoping that more details would be made public and that something inside the home would point to whoever was responsible for these murders. And in addition to processing the crime scene at the Kings Road residence, which included identifying and collecting any available evidence inside the home, investigators also extended their search beyond the home, outside, and in the early days of the attack, officers canvassed the whole neighborhood looking for security cameras that would hopefully point them in the right direction of who was in the area that night. Several surveillance cameras were found, taken, and processed, and review of this footage has provided investigators with crucial information that would eventually lead to an arrest. So when they reviewed all of the security footage, they end up finding a white sedan enters the neighborhood at 3.29 a.m. and passes by the house three times before returning at 4.04 a.m. and then at 4.20 a.m. it can be seen leaving the area at a high rate of speed. So this footage was sent to the FBI at that point and it was further reviewed by a forensic examiner with 35 years of experience who specializes in identifying the unique characteristics of vehicles. And it was this expert who determined that the vehicle matched the description of a 2011 to 2013 Hyundai Elantra, although they later extended the model to incorporate vehicles made between 2011 and 2016. So on November 25th, the Moscow Police Department asked local law enforcement agencies to be on the lookout for any white Hyundai Elantras in the immediate area, but they ended up keeping all information about this vehicle away from the public for another 12 days. So if you have heard this information about the vehicle, it's because it came out in the probable cause affidavit, which came out pretty recently, and I will be getting more into that later. And obviously, because this information was not released at first, it definitely led into the frenzy that maybe this case would never be solved. But throughout this whole time, the police, the FBI have been holding a lot of information close to the vest for, I'm sure, good reason. But meanwhile, while they're working on the case, the families of these four students and students from the University of Idaho and the Moscow community were really coming together to remember the lives that had been lost. Ethan's funeral was the first to be held, and it took place on November 21st. So my name is Stacy Chapin. <laughs> I thought I could do this. Today we're here to honor the life and legacy of our son and brother, Ethan Chapin, one of the most incredible people <laughs> you'll ever know. And then on November 30th, the university held a vigil in honor of Zana, Ethan, Maddie, and Kaylee. And just by looking at these photos from the day, you can see how broken this community was by the loss and still is. But it is also so beautiful to see how everyone came together, regardless of the pain, to be there for these families and for one another. And their parents got up there and spoke with such grace and composure. I cannot imagine being in that situation. I don't think I'd be able to function for a very long time. So it's just incredibly emotional to hear their strength during this horrific time. Ethan's mom spoke beautifully about the importance of family and how proud she was of Ethan and her other children for being a part of the Vandal community. She emphasized the importance of expressing your love to those around you and how necessary it is to keep pushing forward. But I would like to start by saying my name is Stacy Chapin. I'm Ethan's mom. <laughs> I'm here tonight with my husband, Jim, Ethan's dad, and his brother, Hunter, and his sister, Maisie, who are also vandals. What I want you to know is that our family is no different than most all, all probably all of your families. We sat at the dinner table when time permitted. We played games together. We traveled. 
We hauled our kids to every sporting event imaginable. We had cribbage tournaments, pickleball competitions, and basketball shooting contests. But the most important thing is that in our family, we always had each other's backs. And we will continue to do so. And for all of the things that I've listed and the times that I haven't mentioned, we are eternally grateful that we spent so much time with him. And I want to remind you that that's the most important message that we have for you and your families is to make sure that you spend as much time as possible with those people because time is precious and it's something you can't get back. Kaylee's father also gave an incredibly emotional speech about the relationship between father and daughter and how that should be considered the eighth wonder of the world. He also talked about Kaylee and Maddie's relationship over the years and how in the end, like I said, they were happy that they were still together and that brought him and his family a lot of comfort. Just so I can let everybody know, the main reason I'm up here today is so that everybody can understand what we lost. I, I hope to be able to make you laugh, but I'm afraid we're going to have to cry because we lost four beautiful souls. And the two that I'm up here to talk about are the ones I knew. And when I started thinking about how I was going to tell these people what their souls were like and the things that they shared with me, I started thinking that this is going to be really tough. But these girls were absolutely beautiful. They've been friends since sixth grade. We both put them in a charter academy. They felt like they were being punished. Sixth grade, they just found each other. And every day they did homework together. They came to our house together. They shared everything. They convinced us. They made a proposal to go to high school, to a regular high school. So then they went to high schools together. Then they started looking at colleges. They came here together. They eventually get into the same apartment together. And in the end, they died together in the same room, in the same bed. And it's, it's a shame and it hurts. But the beauty of the two always being together is something that will, will it comforts us. It lets us know that they were with their, their best friends in the whole world. Maddie's dad, Ben, spoke so warmly about his only daughter and shared how just incredible she was from the day that she was born. Hearing him talk, you can just feel how proud he was of her, how much he loved her, and how amazed he was by all that she accomplished in her short life. She was Karen and my only child that we ever had. And, uh, and so she got, you know, everything she ever did was such a big deal. She was just such a happy, just a, such a great kid, such a perfect little baby, and so just smart and funny and beautiful. She was just nice to everybody. And when I would meet people, ever since she was first born, when I meet people, I they say, you know, tell me about yourself, or you're just trying to get to know someone. The first thing I'd say is, well, my I have this daughter, and she's she's. You know, here's a picture of her. She's on the dean's list at the, at college, and she's she works hard, and she has all these great friends in the sorority. And she's, you know, I just would tell them all about Maddie. I wouldn't even they would we they walk away from it like I don't know anything about him. I, we know all about his little girl though, and she always worked hard. She started getting jobs when she was just like barely even a teenager. Her mom had the fire her whole housekeeping staff of the hotel that she managed and so Maddie and her friends stepped up and the next day they were all in there cleaning rooms which is a hard job from then on she always had a job like 
like not all of that age of kids are all out there working all the time, but she she sure was. She'd always uh, work hard and uh, and make her own money and and buy her own cars and pay for her own gas. And Unfortunately, Zana's parents were unable to attend this vigil, but her memory was definitely felt through the entire event. And only two days later, a memorial service was held in Post Falls, where friends and family spoke more about the victims. Well, hundreds gathered today in Post Falls for a memorial service for Kaylee, Madison, Zana, and Ethan. The University of Idaho students killed in the quadruple homicide in Moscow last month. The world is a darker place without them, but the light of their, the light of their love and memories will always guide us all. Maddie has truly been a blessing in our lives. Watching her grow and mature into the amazing woman she become is truly priceless in our hearts. Santa, you will not be forgotten. You have impacted so many lives and have given people so much love. I hope I can make you proud and try to leave an impact on this world and on people like you did. If you knew Ethan, he was never angry about anything. Um, he would never get upset. You couldn't upset him ever. We're just heartbroken and we know it. It's just gonna take time for everybody to heal. If that's possible, I, I just pray that it is. But because investigators were keeping so much information under wraps at that point, December was a really tough time for the whole community, but especially these families. We were hearing a lot about the victims, how incredible they were. We were hearing from the families, but we weren't hearing much information about who did this and how they were planning to solve this murder and get justice for these victims. And it was frustrating and, you know, just left so many people wondering. And the information that was public really only made people question everything even more and there just wasn't a lot of answers for those questions. It's been about three weeks since the horrific stabbing death of four college students at the University of Idaho. Three weeks since we lost Zaina, Maddie, Kaylee, and Ethan. Three weeks and still the police have no suspect or person of interest. The community has been left in limbo, left with more confusion and more questions. We are on the hunt for answers for them. Moscow deserves answers. The students of the university deserve answers. These four young innocent victims deserve answers and so do their families. The Gonzalez family, Kaylee's parents were very public about their frustration and disdain, really. They were not happy. They made many media appearances and expressed their concern over and over. They did say that they fully supported and believed in those handling the case, but they were deeply upset about the lack of information. Steve, you have made it very clear to our audience that you are supportive of law enforcement. But recently, I've been watching and talking with you, and you're getting frustrated. What does that frustration come from, sir? They put certain people between you and the officers that are making things happen, and those people are like lawyers, and they don't want to say anything, and they don't, they don't have the guts to come up and be alpha and be like leaders and say, hey, we might say something that's wrong. We're going to take that hit. So the officers, they look me straight in their eyes. The lead de detective looked me in his eyes. He, I, get, I have no doubt he's working as hard as he can. 
but somebody isn't communicating. There's nothing being released. It seems like they're, they're trying to suppress the story. We just have no information as family, and it gets um, tough day after day after day. I mean, every day you just wake up and think today's the day. We're going to hear something and you see these, oh, there's a break in the case and it'll just be something stupid. The sixth you know? person in the, there's on the lease that was never there. Stop playing games. Zana's mom, Kara, had similar frustrations as the Gonzalez family, but she, on the other hand, didn't have much faith in law enforcement. Have the police been helpful to you, Kara, to understand some of the things they can and can't say? Uh, you know, honestly, no. Honestly, no. They haven't said anything. I learn more on the news and on TV than they have said to me. She said in the first three weeks that this all was unfolding. She didn't spend a lot of time communicating with the other families that she was really trying to grieve and process all of this with her own family. But now we really know that even though there didn't seem like there was a lot happening, there really was a lot happening behind the scenes. And because the crime scene was a very popular location for many students, tons of people partied there. There was a bunch of DNA in that house. Dozens of people had been through that house, especially in the weeks and days leading up to the attack. And so investigators had to comb through dozens, if not hundreds of different DNA profiles in an attempt to find the one that shouldn't have been inside the house. You know, when you think about it, uh, you know, you think, well, wow, we've got this evidence rich environment. We're going to be able to get this thing shut down really quick, you know, come to a conclusion. And it's amazing. Many times, the more data you have, uh, the more complex the case becomes. Most people in their day-to-day -day lives don't think about just touching surfaces and going through the motions and that sort of thing. But every time you touch something, you leave a trace behind. And in this particular case, if you have people coming and going, they're leaving these kind of slough skin cells everywhere. That's where we get touch DNA. During this whole time, authorities did over 250 interviews, and they're also coming through thousands and thousands of tips that have come in. Over 19,000 tips actually came in, which is insane. And at this time, they're also keeping the house secured from the public while releasing the information that they could without jeopardizing the integrity of the investigation. So by this point, it was believed that Kaylee may have had some type of stalker, although the details around this were very murky. We didn't know how long it had been going on or even how serious of a situation it was, but her parents have since stated that Kaylee would call them and tell them that she thought that someone had been following her, walking too close to her at the grocery store, but it was never something that was actually reported. But her parents were aware of this. And at this time, it felt like maybe this is a big piece of information that could possibly possibly point them in the right direction to who actually committed this murder. Around this time, it also became public that this knife was a military style knife, a serious knife. And so people started to wonder if maybe this attacker could have been someone who was in the military. But only having bits and pieces of information definitely led people down all types of rabbit holes. Some people really focused on the idea that Kaylee could have this stalker, that it was someone who, you know, was going after Kaylee specifically and the others were kind of just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Other people thought 
that maybe this was someone close to them because there was no signs of forced entry. Maybe it was someone who was in the house or regularly came to the house. There were so many what ifs and not enough information to really back up any of these theories. And it wasn't until December 7th when information regarding the white Hyundai Elantra was released that people started to feel a little more hopeful about the investigation. In a press release from the Moscow Police Department, detectives announced that they were interested in speaking with the occupant of a white 2011 to 2013 Hyundai Elantra with an unknown license plate. They said that this person driving the vehicle they believed had at least information about what happened, but they did not say whether or not they thought this person was a suspect. Update. Moscow detectives, they're interested in speaking with the occupants of a white 2011, 2012, or 2013 model year Hyundai Elantra unknown license plate police saying that this vehicle was believed to be in the immediate area of the house where the murders happened on November 13th, those early morning hours. Immediate area, we don't exactly know what that means, if that means on the block or right in front of the house itself. News Nation uh, reporting investigators believe that the occupants of this vehicle might have critical information about this case. The owner of this vehicle might not be the murderer, of course, the police are looking for, but might have critical information about this case. But at this point, we now know that police actually did have more information about this vehicle than they were letting on. In fact, they had a suspect in mind at this point, but they made the decision to keep that information private. However, they did share what they could about the car, and it was enough to give the public hope that justice might be coming. And the same day that the information about the vehicle was released, the police were also seen at the King Road residence as they began packing up the victim's belongings to finally return them to their families. And I can only imagine how emotional, how bittersweet it was for those families to get those items back. Then on December 12th, another update from the police went live. In this announcement, Department Captain Roger Lanier provided more information about why they were looking into this Hyundai Elantra. There's been a lot of questions about the white car that we've been interested in. We're looking for that car because we believe through our investigation that that car was in the area during the time of the murders. And we also believe that the occupant or occupants may have seen something. They may not know they have seen something. So we specifically want to talk to them and we want to know uh, who they are and what they might know or might be able to contribute to the investigation. He also explained how they were still receiving thousands of tips and trying to sort them based on their relevance to the case. Over the weekend, investigators have sorted through and prioritized numerous tips. Some are tips that came in earlier and we've been working on. Other tips are new and uh, are relevant. It's overwhelming sometimes with the amount of information that comes in on these tip lines. So our analysts have spent uh, hours sorting through and trying to come up with the most relevant tips first for the investigators to follow up on. And then he also said that despite what many people believe, that police do have more information that they're just not sharing with the public to protect the integrity of the case. Finally, I just want to add that we do have a lot of information and we are specifically keeping that information safe. We're not releasing specific details because we do not want to compromise this investigation. It's what we must do. We owe that to the families and we owe that to the victims. We want more than just an arrest. We want a conviction. We owe that justice to Zana 
Kaylee, Madison, and Ethan. And I'm sure this was a really difficult time for investigators. I mean, they're getting hounded for supposedly not having any answers on this case, for not having any information, for not providing any solid answers to these questions that were being asked. And for two and a half weeks following this update, people continuously questioned if the police were even capable of solving this case. But meanwhile, they are protecting extremely valuable information so that the suspect would not be tipped off. And as December went on, there were were many sightings of white Hyundai Elantras that people thought could be connected to the case, but police knew that it wasn't because they actually knew who exactly this car belonged to and where it was. Also, around this time, the Lataw County coroner came under a lot of fire because they had shared some very graphic details about the conditions of their bodies to Kaylee's younger sister. And it was unbelievable. The coroner actually started sharing their own theories about what happened, which is totally weird and irresponsible if you ask me. But luckily there were a lot of positive things happening behind the scenes. The case was really moving forward. Finally, on December 30th, 2022, some big news came out. There was an arrest made. 28-year-old Brian Christopher Koberger was arrested as a suspected killer in the University of Idaho quadruple homicide of Zanna, Ethan, Kaylee, and Maddie. This obviously was huge news and such a relief. I finally felt comfortable even talking about the case on social media at that point because it felt like, you know, they really felt confident about Brian. Although, I will say it's still alleged he is still the suspect, you know, innocent until proven guilty. So Brian was arrested at his family home all the way in Pennsylvania, Albrightsville, Pennsylvania to be specific. And he was arrested at 3 a.m. on four charges of first degree murder and one charge of felony burglary. Last night, in conjunction with the Pennsylvania State Police, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, detectives arrested 28-year-old Brian Christopher Kohlberger in Albrightsville, Pennsylvania, on a warrant for murder of Ethan, Zena, Madison, and Kaylee. A criminal complaint was filed yesterday here in Lataw County, charging the defendant, Mr. Kohlberger, with four counts of first-degree murder, in addition to felony burglary, which involves entering the residence with the intent to commit the crime of murder. These murders have shaken our community, and no arrest will ever bring back these young students. However, We do believe justice will be found through the criminal process. So a special emergency response team, or otherwise known as CERT, used a tactic called dynamic entry to make this arrest. And this is only used in high risk situations. And over 50 law enforcement personnel were used in this arrest to make sure that they got Brian without incident. Upon his arrest, Brian Koberger was brought into the Monroe County Correctional Facility where he remained in custody and on suicide watch until his extradition. Tactical assets were then staged in the county, in Monroe County, into the evening of Thursday, December 29th, last Thursday. And in the early hours of Friday, December 30th, those warrants were executed at the location. Mr. Koberger was taken into custody without incident. The scene was turned over to the FBI evidence response team for processing. Mr. Koberger was then turned over to the Monroe County Prison, where he has remained in their custody since. 
And the same day of his arrest, December 30th, investigators were also seen exiting his apartment in Pullman, Washington, with several boxes of what appeared to be evidence collected during the execution of a search warrant. And up until recently, the items that they collected were not made public. And I will talk more about what exactly they found towards the end, because that information did just recently come out. And like I said, I felt so much relief when this happened. I know so many people did. All across the nation, people have been following this case, just fearing that maybe there would never be answers, maybe there would never be justice, but I truly can't imagine what this day was like for their families. It must have been so overwhelming and... You know, obviously it's a huge win for them, but it's got to come with so many mixed emotions. And even though everyone can kind of take a sigh of relief after this arrest, you know, this is only the beginning. I think Kaylee's dad put it really well when he described what it was like to find out about all of this. It was nearly seven weeks of absolutely no clear guidance that we were on the right track. We had evidence. We knew there was evidence, but all that can mean nothing until you have a face and a person and personality to put it towards. When we found that out, uh, luckily it was in the middle of the night, you know, 1030. Uh, we were able to run around the house, wake everyone up and say, hey, you know what, we got we got this guy, we got somebody. But you uh, tell yourself to be careful because you never know for sure. You know, it's a defendant and he's, it's not it's not done. There's still a lot more work to do. It was worth the wait and um, we're on the right track and uh, there's still a long ways to go, but it feels good. It feels good to be where we are right now. Zana's mom told NBC that despite the nightmare that they had been going through, that this was a huge weight lifted off their shoulders. Kara Northington, the mother of victim Zana Kernodal, telling NBC News, it's been a nightmare. This whole thing has been a nightmare, literally. But I feel like a huge weight has lifted off my shoulders. So as far as we know, Brian's arrest was seamless, but there were still several steps that needed to be taken before investigators could release any more information to the public. According to the Idaho Supreme Court. They now had to get Brian actually back to Latah County before the probable cause affidavit could even be released. So they scheduled an extradition hearing on January 3rd, during which Brian would decide whether or not to waive extradition. And that day, as Brian came into the courthouse, large groups of reporters gathered to witness the suspect in person for the very first time. The suspected University of Idaho murderer will appear in front of a judge and the world today in Monroe County, Pennsylvania. 28-year-old suspect Brian Christopher Koberger will appear this afternoon at an extradition hearing. As Long Crime Network reported, Koberger was arrested in the early morning hours of Friday at his parents' home in Albrightsville, Pennsylvania. During this hearing, Brian did agree to waive extradition, and the following day on January 4th, he was voluntarily flown back to Idaho to face his charges. So before we even get into the charges and the arrest affidavit, let's talk about what we know about Brian. I want to talk about who Brian is and how his past makes his connection to these murders even more disturbing. For 47 days, police were tight-lipped about what happened inside this house, giving basically no information about a suspect or even a person of interest. But what we didn't know was that they had someone in their sights nearly the entire time. Brian Koberger, a criminology student in neighboring Pullman, Washington. And as we dig into what we know about him, some of the pieces to this puzzle start to come together even more. So it turns out Brian Christopher Koberger is a 28-year-old PhD student studying criminology at Washington State University located in Pullman, Washington, which in my opinion was one of the most 
shocking details about all of this. Brian was born and raised in the Pocono Mountains in Pennsylvania, where his father worked in maintenance and his mother worked in the local school system. He has two older sisters. One is a therapist and one is a school counselor. I guess in middle school, he was known as somewhat of a misfit. And some recent reports have come out, which is not surprising, that say that Brian was relentless in his pursuit of girls that he had crushes on. It's been said that from a young age, his behavior towards women has always been slightly off, but as far as we know, was never violent. Brian attended Pleasant Valley High School, and he was known there as being a pretty quiet kid while he endured years of bullying. One of his ex-friends from back then says that he was relatively normal until he started using heroin, at which point he became extremely secluded and self-destructive. She also says that at that point, he went from being bullied to being the bully. The New York Times recently accessed some information from an old forum where Brian made posts as a teenager and expressed a lot of feelings of isolation. In total, he made 118 posts under the username XR spelled E-X-A-R-R. In one of these posts, he wrote, I feel like an organic sack of meat with no self-worth. He also said, as I hug my family, I look into their faces. I see nothing. It is like I am looking at a video game. Brian also expressed an inability to feel empathy towards others and even shared that he doesn't feel remorse when being mean to his family. As he grew older, he continued to make posts like this, never really wavering from these dark feelings. In 2011, he shared more about his depression, stating specifically that he has constant thoughts of suicide, crazy thoughts, delusions of grandeur, anxiety, poor self-image, poor social skills, and no emotion. Brian also shared that he suffers from visual snow syndrome, which is where people see static in their vision. So after he graduated high school, Brian stayed in his hometown and became the security guard for the local high school that he went to. He did eventually get clean from heroin and attended Northampton Community College before moving on to DeSales University, where he got his bachelor's in psychology in 2020 and his master's in criminal justice in 2022. And during his time at DeSales University, Brian really developed an interest in criminal psychology. And he actually posted this survey, which has gone all over the internet at this point. Sources tell ABC News investigators are looking at this Reddit post, actively recruiting criminals as part of a school study to understand the psychology of those who commit crimes. It was written by a user named Brian Koberger and linked to a survey of detailed questions. And he basically asked ex-cons about the crimes that they committed, how they felt, during each point while committing a crime, how they prepared for these crimes and more. He specifically said things like, before making your move, how did you approach the victim or target? Did you prepare for the crime before leaving your home? After arriving, what steps did you take to locate your victims? This survey is just one of the many things that raised suspicions for investigators and have left so many people wondering if he was looking for personal intel on, you know, how to commit crimes on his own. Also, while earning his master's degree at DeSales, Brian had the opportunity to study under Dr. Katherine Ramsland, who is a renowned forensic psychologist and an expert on serial killers. She's best known for her work with the BTK killer, Dennis Rader. Although she has not made a public statement about her experience with Brian yet, probably because she's going to be brought in and will speak in court, but many people have speculated that maybe Brian was trying to seek out someone with intimate knowledge of how serial killers operate in hopes to learn more for his own benefit. 
It has even been speculated that Brian maybe tried to reach out to the BTK killer himself, and Dennis's daughter said she wouldn't be surprised if Brian had tried. Do you think he may have had any sort of communication with your father? Knowing how personally connected Ramsland is to my father, um, I would not be surprised if Koberger had at least tried to write my father. So after getting his master's, Brian went on to Washington State University, where he was studying to get his PhD in criminology and also worked as a teaching assistant. Some people who have taken classes with Brian said that he was always quick to offer up his opinion on things, and he seemed to try to impress everyone with his intelligence all the time, seemed to be very full of himself. One of his classmates said that he had an arrogance about him that was extremely off-putting, and one time he even stated that he could go to any bar and get any lady that he wants. And this type of language is honestly not surprising from someone like Brian. It's totally disgusting, but it makes a lot of sense. And what's also really creepy is we have recently learned about some interactions that he has had with people since he allegedly committed these murders that are very off-putting. For example, he was talking to a neighbor about the case and he said that he doesn't think the police have any leads. And not only that, Brian also told this neighbor that he felt like this was a crime of passion. Is just so creepy. Also, many of his students have said that he was acting very different in the days after the murders were committed, specifically that he was grading all their papers super easily. Like he was always kind of tough on everyone, but after this happened, it seemed like he was barely paying attention and giving out A's left and right. I think more than anything, people keep coming back to the idea that Brian seemed to be someone who thought that he was extremely intelligent and could pull off a murder without ever being caught. Like, he was some type of mastermind who could outsmart the police when in reality, there were several mistakes that he made in the act of committing these crimes. And obviously, he has yet to be found guilty of any of the five charges that he is facing, but... Some of the evidence I'm about to present to you is extremely convincing. So January 5th, 2023, very recently, Brian made his first court appearance in Lataw County. And while he was there, the criminal complaint outlining his charges was read to him. Count one of the criminal complaint charges you with the felony offense of burglary. It alleges that the defendant, Brian C. Koberger, on or about November 13th of 2022, in Lataw County, state of Idaho, did unlawfully enter a residence located at 1122 King Road, Moscow, with the intent to commit the felony crime of murder. Count two alleges that you committed the felony offense of murder in the first degree. It alleges that the defendant, Brian C. Koberger, on or about November 13, 2022, did willfully, unlawfully, deliberately, with premeditation and with malice aforethought, kill and murder Madison Mogan, Haley Gonsalves, Zana Kernodal, Ethan Chapin, in violation of Idaho Code 18-4001-4002-4003-4004. The maximum penalty for this offense, if you were to plead guilty or be found guilty, is death or imprisonment for life. Do you understand? Yes. And this same day, the probable cause affidavit was released, which provided an in-depth analysis of the evidence that linked Brian Koberger to the quadruple homicide and led to his arrest in Pennsylvania. This 19-page document details how investigators went from no leads to making an arrest several states away. And it has since been read by millions of people around the world, and it provides the answers to so many of the questions we have been wondering since the beginning. A probable cause affidavit was released Thursday morning shortly before Kober 
Koberger's court appearance. It reveals Koberger was tied to the crime through DNA, his cell phone records, and a video of a white Hyundai Elantra. And keep in mind, while I am explaining some of the information that we learned through the affidavit, I will be repeating some of the timeline, but we will be kind of going back and filling in some of those gaps. So one of the many findings that was released in the probable cause affidavit stated that a vehicle was seen passing the victim's house several times on the night of the attack. I know I shared this information earlier, but I wanted to touch on it once again because it's clearly a very important part. And what makes it so important is that it provided investigators with a lead that they could use to help identify a possible suspect. And with this information, Moscow police reached out to law enforcement in the surrounding community and asked that they keep an eye out for vehicles matching the description, which leads me to the next thing revealed in the affidavit. So a campus officer at Washington State University was responsible for linking the Elantra to Brian Koberger. The affidavit shares that on November 29th, four days after the Moscow police asked local law enforcement to be on the lookout for this vehicle, a campus officer inquired about the Elantra on WSU's campus. At approximately 11.58, this officer located a 2015 white Elantra in a parking spot at a student apartment complex, and after running the plates, he'd learned that the vehicle belonged to someone named Brian Koberger. And this is significant to police because after looking up photos of Brian, it became apparent that he matched the description of the masked man seen inside the house on the night of the murders, which takes me to the next major piece of information that was released. One of the most shocking details that has come out in the affidavit is that one of the surviving roommates, DM, was not only awake during the attack, but actually saw the killer himself. It was originally stated that all four roommates plus the two surviving roommates were asleep during the attack, but we learned that this is not the case. The affidavit shares that around 4 a.m. on November 13th, DM woke up hearing what she believed to be Kaylee playing with her dog. And then not long after waking up, the roommate shared that she heard something along the lines of, there's someone here. It says after hearing this, DM got out of bed for the first time to peek outside her door, but went back to her room when she didn't see anything. And it also shared that Xana was awake during this time too. We find out that she actually received a DoorDash order at 4 a.m. And her cell phone record showed that she was on TikTok at approximately 4.12 a.m. So there's still a question mark here about whether this roommate DM actually heard something playing on Xana's phone or if she actually heard someone inside the home. But one takeaway we can get from this is that there was more than one person awake at the time. DM then says that she heard crying coming from Xana's room and then a male voice say, it's okay, I'm going to help you. So at this point, she looks outside of her door a second time and sees nothing. And surprisingly, a security camera less than 50 feet away from the west wall of Xana's room corroborated these sounds. The affidavit says that around 4.17 a.m., a surveillance camera near the residence picked up distorted audio of what sounded like a whimper and then a loud thud. And Kaylee's dog can also be heard barking. And then the crying continued and DM looks out her door one more time. And this time she sees the killer. She describes seeing a figure clad in black clothing and a mask. And he walked by as she stood frozen in shock. One of the surviving roommates told officers she woke up around 4 a.m. and heard what she thought was crying from Carnotal's room. At about 4.17 a.m., a security camera about 50 feet from the wall of Carnotal's bedroom picked up distorted audio of what sounded like a whimper, followed by a loud thud and a dog barking. 
The roommate says she opened her door and saw a man in black clothing and a mask. Court documents say the man walked by her and out a back sliding glass door. She then locked herself in her room. She described this figure as a male, 5'10 or taller, not very muscular, but athletically built with bushy eyebrows. And after seeing him, she got scared and she locked herself in her room. And having an eyewitness description was crucial so that investigators had something to compare photos against. So when that WSU officer found the Elantra registered to Brian and they had the eyewitness description, it was a strong lead to work off of. So a lot has been said about the roommate seeing the suspect, but then the 911 call wasn't placed until eight hours later. There's been a lot of confusion and questions around this. In the beginning, people figured, you know, they're college students. Maybe they slept in and didn't know that this had taken place. And that's why the 911 call was made so much later. But now that it's come out that DM actually saw the suspect in the house, went back in a room and locked the door, there's been a lot of questions about why she didn't call right away. And I know that my audience, for the most part, is very kind and respectful to all victims. And I think at this point, while we don't know everything, it's important that we remember that these surviving roommates are victims in their own way. And there are several reasonable explanations for why it may have taken so long to call 911. Let's not forget that she was in shock. Her body had a physiological response to what she had just seen and put her in like a frozen state. I think instead of blaming this young girl or questioning her story at this point, people should first of all be thankful that she survived and second of all be thankful that she saw this killer and was able to get that information back to the police and that was very crucial in them making this arrest. Even Kaylee's father has expressed how sorry he feels for her with all this public scrutiny for what she experienced that night and does not put any blame on her for not calling calling the police sooner. But this is a girl that that's, wasn't prepared to see what she's seen. I, my heart goes out to the, to her. And I know people have questions about it, and that's just natural, but I think at this point it's not helpful. So going back in time here, before they actually arrested Brian, they had to keep an eye on him while also trying to gather enough evidence to actually tie him to the crime scene. Going back to December 13th, Brian and his father Michael began the trek home from Washington back to where he lived and grew up in Pennsylvania. And he was going home from the Christmas break. This was a pre-planned trip and investigators were able to track his movements with the help of several key pieces of information. First of all, Brian's car got a hit on a license plate reader in Loma, Colorado. Then, and most notably, on December 15th, Brian was pulled over in Hancock, Indiana around 10.40 a.m. on I-70 for following too closely behind a semi-truck. In this December 15th dash cam video provided to 13 News by the Hancock County Sheriff's Department. Hello. How you doing? How y'all doing today? A deputy pulls over Brian Koberger, the man accused of killing four Idaho college students. Koberger's father in the passenger seat. The deputy asks for his driver's license. You right up on the back end of that van, pulled you over for tailgating. Koberger's father tells the deputy they're driving from Washington State, where Koberger was a grad student. In a conversation, he mentioned it was the scene of a shooting. Uh, what did you say about some SWAT team thing? Or yeah, something? there was yeah, there was, was a mass shooting and everything. Where? 
Interesting. Then only a few hours later, he was pulled over again by an Indiana state trooper. I've read some reports that these stops were done deliberately at the request of the FBI to see if Brian had any defensive wounds. So they continue on their way. And by December 16th, they made it back to Albrightsville, which was confirmed after his vehicle was spotted on surveillance in the town. And when he got there, there was a surveillance team tasked with two big missions. The first, to keep an eye out on Brian until enough information was available to make an arrest. And in doing so, they made some more valuable discoveries. The arrest warrant states that while in Pennsylvania, Brian was seen cleaning both the exterior and interior of his car. He was wearing surgical gloves when he left his home. And then at 4 a.m., he is seen taking his own trash and putting it in his neighbor's trash can. All of these behaviors seem to align with a guilty person, if you ask me. The second mission for the surveillance team was to get a DNA sample of Brian to compare it to the DNA that was found at the crime scene. That's right. There was DNA left at the crime scene. Up until this point, it was unknown if the killer had left their DNA or not, but the affidavit shared a major discovery. The document says that a knife sheath had been located on the right side of Maddie's body, and after careful testing, a single source of male DNA was found on the button snap. This DNA was sent to the Idaho State Lab for testing, but at the time, investigators had nothing to compare it against until now. Pennsylvania authorities were able to take items from the family's trash can on December 27th and immediately submitted it to the Idaho State Lab. And results came back the following day, which stated that the test identified a male as not being excluded as the biological father of the suspect. Specifically, at least 99.9998% of the male population would be excluded from being the suspect's father. So that means it's more than 99% likely that the DNA found on the knife sheath was a match for Brian Koberger. Trash ending up being key in the case. Police linking Koberger to the murders by collecting his father's DNA from trash outside the family home and matching that to DNA they say they discovered on the button snap of a knife sheath that was on the bed next to the body of victim Madison Mogan. And pretty recently, one of Brian's neighbors from his apartment complex shared that once he had a conversation with Brian where he shared that he had taken a DNA test to learn more about his ancestry. It wasn't specified where exactly his DNA was submitted, but it was probably something like 23andMe or Ancestry, something along those lines. And while this DNA match is definitely one of the most substantial pieces of evidence that placed Brian at the crime scene, it wasn't the only evidence. By the end of December, a search warrant was obtained for Brian's cell phone records, and that showed that since June of 2022, his cell phone pinged off the towers that provide coverage to the area of 1122 King Road 12 times before the victims were killed. And each of these 12 visits, except for one, occurred in the early morning hours or the late evening. And police did not share the dates of all of these visits except for one. It turns out that on August 21st, 2022, Brian was pulled over within minutes of the victim's house. So clearly, 
this is stalking behavior. And it seemed like he was staking out the area and these victims for a while. And on top of these 12 visits to the neighborhood, additional cell phone records show suspicious activity occurring on Brian's phone on the actual morning of the murders. At 2.47 a.m. on November 13th, Brian's cell phone stopped connecting to the tower located near his residence in Pullman, Washington, which is located 10 minutes from the University of Idaho. And this is consistent with someone turning off their phone or like putting it in airplane mode, which prevents the device from providing location data. And it wasn't until 4.48 a.m. that his phone reconnected to a network several miles south of the University of Idaho and was tracked back to his residence in Pullman. Clearly, this is Brian making an attempt to conceal his location during those hours. But even though he attempted to do this, attempted to turn his phone off or an airplane mode or whatever, he still was caught on security footage driving in the direction of the killings. Specifically at 2.53 a.m., a surveillance camera spotted a white sedan traveling toward the highway that connects Pullman to Moscow. Next, as I explained earlier, at 3.29 a.m., a surveillance camera in a neighborhood where the murders took place captured a white Hyundai Elantra making three passes by the house and then returning a fourth time. The vehicle attempts to either park or make a three-point turn. I also mentioned earlier that the same vehicle was seen leaving the area around 4.20 a.m. at a high rate of speed. Outside the house, police say the suspect's alleged movements played a big role in connecting him to the crime scene. On the day of the murders, a white sedan matching the suspect's vehicle was spotted in the area from 3.29 a.m. to 4.20 a.m. Court documents show the vehicle drove by the house three times at about 3.30 a.m. before leaving the road. Then at 4.04, the car returned to the street and parked. The car then leaves the street at a, quote, high rate of speed at about 4.20 a.m. And the suspicious activity found through Brian's phone records does not stop there. We also found out that he may have returned to the crime scene several hours after the murders took place around 9 a.m. on November 13th. Brian's phone connected to several towers that are consistent with him driving in the direction of Moscow. Then his phone connected to a network near the scene of the crime at 9.12 a.m. and stayed in the area until 9 21 a.m. After this nine-minute stay, his phone was traced back to the area of his residence in Pullman. If he is responsible for these murders, and I think you all know where I stand at least, and I know where most of you stand, that is extremely creepy. It's like he was going back to the scene to see if they had called 911 yet, and this is pretty common, actually. There have been many instances over the years of killers coming back to the scene of the crime, and it's just such a slap in the face to these victims who are still lying undiscovered in their beds dead. It's just horrific. It makes my skin crawl. So the affidavit also reveals some information about Brian leading up to the murders occurring, like the months before. Turns out just a few months back, Brian had applied for a internship with the Pullman Police Department. And as part of his application, he was required to write an essay in which he shared that he was interested in helping rural police departments collect and analyze technological data in public safety operations. So ultimately, it was the DNA linking Brian to the knife sheath, the cell phone location data, and his white Hyundai Elantra that led to his arrest on December 30th, 2022. And I know that was a lot of information to go over, but honestly, that's just an abbreviated version. There is so much here. I highly recommend reading the probable cause affidavit for yourself because it does provide a lot of information about how this arrest was made possible. So even though we do have a lot of information at this point, there are still a lot of questions that are unanswered that hopefully 
we know more about in the future. Some of those being, you know, where is the knife? What is the motive in this case? Why did it take the roommates so long to call 911? These are all things we don't know. I also did want to mention that there was a shoe print in the house from a sneaker from the brand Vans. However, we don't know at this point if it actually belonged to Brian. It really could have been anyone that came through the house at any time leading up to the murders. And I'm sure all of this information has been shocking and overwhelming to the victim's families because they have been kept in the dark just as much as the rest of us. I wish I would have had it earlier. I wouldn't have been so stressed out. We had like pieces of that story and interwoven. I mean, the mask, we heard about somebody seeing a masked person, but it there were so many holes in what we knew that uh, we just had to throw our hands up and trust the enforcement. Kaylee's family has been very, very vocal throughout this entire case, but especially in the last few weeks since his arrest was made. They've made many appearances in the media and they've shared kind of how they're doing. And both the Gonzalez and the Chapin family have expressed that they are not spending any of their time being angry about what happened. Ethan's mom, Stacy, recently took to Facebook to share how their family is doing. She expressed that Ethan's siblings have both returned to the university of Idaho for the spring semester and also talked about how their family is choosing to look ahead. They say that they just need to keep moving forward, especially considering that an arrest is not the end of the road, but merely the beginning. Maddie's dad said following the arrest and the release of the affidavit, he broke down in tears and has yet to read the entire document. If I had one or two words to describe Maddie May, it would be just an angel and that she was, she just made me proud. I just, I broke down and I just, I just cried. I could only take so much of that. And I just, uh, I, I cried. I still haven't read the rest of it. Zana's loved ones are leaning on each other for support during this time and just hoping that more answers continue to come to light. They have also created a scholarship in her honor called the Zana Kernodal Scholarship Endowment, which is a collaboration with the University of Idaho to honor her memory and keep her legacy alive. Her family made a generous donation of $10,000 to kick off the fund in hopes that it would inspire others to do the same. Also, a scholarship fund was made in Ethan's memory called Ethan Chapin Memorial Scholarship Fund. The scholarship is in collaboration with his fraternity, Sigma Chi, and the funds collected will be annually given to one undergraduate member of the organization. And Ethan's former employers at the Tulip Farm have really honored his life in their own way. They have created a special bulb mix of yellow and white tulips that they have named Ethan's Smile, which I just love that. And they not only have planted their own gardens, but they will be available for purchase and proceeds will go towards supporting his scholarship fund. So clearly the fight for justice here is not over. It's really just beginning and there is going to be much more information coming out over the next year or honestly years to come. Brian received a new public defender when he arrived back in Idaho and he will be working with her on his defense. I cannot imagine doing that. And even though he has not yet entered his plea, which I'm guessing will be not guilty, he has expressed his eagerness to clear his name to be exonerated of any and all charges that he is facing. And his public defender in Pennsylvania recently shared that Brian seemed confident that he will not face jail time. We will see about that. He has also shared that while the affidavit is strong, there are areas in it that could be easily attacked by a competent defense attorney. 
attorney. So it will be up to the prosecution to present a really solid case, and I hope they will be able to do so. I mean, there's a lot here. Brian Koberger made a second appearance in court on January 12th, 2023 for a status hearing during which we learned that a preliminary hearing will take place. Brian's counsel requested that the hearing be scheduled for the third or fourth week of June, citing that they would like the added time to obtain discovery in their case. In the state of Idaho, a judge must schedule a preliminary hearing no later than 14 days after the defendant makes their first court appearance, unless the right to a speedy preliminary hearing is waived. And in this case, Brian chose to waive this right and accepted that this hearing would take place at a later date. If you waive your right to a speedy preliminary hearing, it does not mean that you're giving up your right to have a preliminary hearing. It simply means that you would not be able to come back and challenge that the state did not present probable cause within 14 days. Do you understand? Yes. And this request was agreed upon and led by Prosecutor Bill Thompson, and the preliminary hearing was then scheduled for June 26, 2023 at 9 a.m., at which point he will have to make his official plea of guilty or not guilty. So it's definitely going to be hard waiting until then. If he pleads not guilty and it is determined that there is enough evidence in place to go ahead and move forward with a trial, that will begin hopefully shortly after. And because he killed four people, Brian could could potentially face the death penalty. So in just the last couple of days before I sat down to record this, there have been a few new bits of information that have come out. For example, it's now being reported that he allegedly sent repeated DMs to one of the victims. And keep in mind, this is not confirmed, but an unnamed investigator told a reporter at People Magazine that Brian said things like, hey, how are you doing? And sent similar messages on several occasions. It's also being reported that he visited Mad Greek, the restaurant where Maddie and Zana worked, not long before the murders. An employee who worked there says that she remembers Brian going there on two occasions and ordering vegan pizza. However, the restaurant has actually made their own statement about this on their Facebook page, saying that these accusations were not true. There are some new details coming out tonight about alleged reports surrounding the Idaho murder suspect. Early this week, People magazine reported that Koberger ate at a restaurant where two of the victims worked as waitresses. News Nation spoke with Steve Helling, a senior crime writer for People yesterday. This is what he had to say. You know, whether or not his paths crossed with the girls there and whether or not that's where it started, that's something that the cops would know for sure. But we know for sure that he ate there at least twice. But now the Mad Greek restaurant is rejecting reports that alleged killer Brian Koberger dined there shortly before the murders. In a Facebook post, the restaurant saying, quote, this will be my only response to the story from people. It is not true. So, no one really knows what's going on with that situation. I imagine the police know more about that. It's been interesting to see how the media is like really hung on to this idea that he had gone to the restaurant when the restaurant is saying that he didn't. So I don't know, big question mark there. But if these things end up being true and he really did message one or more of the victims and maybe visited them at Mad Greek, that would help the prosecution show premeditation for sure. But like I said, we're not sure if that's even true at this point. And then just recently, a 49 
one-page document was unsealed by a Washington state judge that shares what was seized at Brian's residence during the execution of a search warrant on December 30th, 2022. At first, this information was going to be kept private, but luckily the release of the probable cause affidavit gave investigators confidence that sharing this search warrant information wouldn't jeopardize the integrity of the case. We're finally getting more clues into what investigators were after when they searched Brian Koberger's home. He is the 28-year-old PhD student who's accused of murdering four University of Idaho students in their off-campus home. The search warrant was originally sealed, but a Washington state judge ordered its release just hours ago. Remember, Koberger lived in Washington state. And this is what we learned from it being unsealed. On December 30th, 2022, a team of officers entered Brian Kober's residence located at 1630 NE Valley Road, apartment G201 in Pullman, Washington. And inside the apartment, investigators collected the following items. One nitrate type black glove, one Walmart receipt with one Dickies tag, two Marshall's receipts, dust container from a Bissell Power Force vacuum, 12 possible hair strands, one fire TV stick with a cord and plug, one possible animal hair, which some have speculated that this might be from the dog that was at the house, one computer tower, one collection of a dark red spot, two cuttings from an uncased pillow with a reddish brown stain, one of which has already been tested, and two top and bottom of a mattress cover packaged separately, both labeled C, each with multiple stains, and one of those has been tested. And this information obviously tells investigators a lot, even if some of it is still being kept from the public. Obviously, we now know what was actually found, but we don't know if any of it actually links Brian to the murders. Also, his office at Washington State University was searched, but again, this document doesn't share what, if anything, was actually seized as a result. But along with this new information that has come out from the warrant being unsealed, there has also been a gag order put in place. This is going to prevent any attorney representing a witness, victim, or victim's family from making comments about the case. But this gag order doesn't stop their families from speaking out, although many of the families have been putting out statements through their attorneys. This caught a lot of us by surprise who have been covering this case very, very closely because there was all already a strict gag order in place uh, for the last several weeks or so that pretty much prevented both sides, the prosecution, uh, the defense attorneys, and any law enforcement involved in the case from talking at all about the case. So we weren't getting very much information officially. Well, now the judge has signed off on a new gag order that takes that even farther, uh, now including pretty much everyone involved, including attorneys representing the victim's families in the case. So I don't know at this point if they're going to continue to speak out or if they'll kind of pull back now that this gag order is in place. But overall, knowing how hard investigators have worked on this case and how much has been done behind the scenes is really hopeful. And I can only imagine they will continue to put forth the same effort until Brian Koberger is behind bars. Although innocent until proven guilty, I've got to say that, but I don't know. You guys know how I feel. Getting a guilty conviction could be a long time from now, months and months, if not a year or more. But I have a gut feeling that there will be justice for Zanna, Ethan, Maddie, and Kaylee. Sadly, nothing will ever bring these incredible young lives back. But I believe that as long as we continue to push for the truth, a time will come when a sense of justice will be felt. Like I said, I will be doing some type of update at some point when there is 
quite a bit of information release. I don't know how long that will be. God, I have to say working on this case has been really difficult. It's so much information out there to weed through. And not only that, it's just emotionally draining and scary. Like I have had so many nightmares about this case. I don't know what it is about it that is just... I think most of us can agree is really freaky and scares me to my core, truly. So I can't imagine how these families feel and how haunting this will be for the rest of their lives. I mean, that grief just can never truly go away. I just wish them all the best and hope that at some point getting justice for these wonderful kids can help them to heal in some way. This crime has nevertheless left a mark on our university, our community, and our state. While we cannot bring back Maddie, Kaylee, Zaina, and Ethan, we can thoughtfully and purposefully carry their legacy forward in the work that we do. With time, we will heal, we will move forward together, and we will remain Vandal strong. That is going to be it for me today, guys. Thank you for joining me for another episode. And make sure you follow the show on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. It really does help me out. If you want to watch the video version of this show, you can find it on my YouTube channel, which will be linked, or you can just search Kendall Ray. I will be back with another episode soon, but until then, stay safe out there.